Welcome to Three Panel Contrast, the podcast that puts certain comics and certain academic minds into dialogue with others. In this episode, our team of scholars will be comparing G. Willow Wilson and Adrian Alfona's Ms. Marvel to Brendan Fletcher, Cameron Stewart, and Babs Tarr's Batgirl of Burnside. Along the way, we'll consider the question of legacy characters, youth culture, the role of fashion in comics, and the eternal challenge of narrative development within the uniquely complex world of comics continuity. Wham. Bang. Pow. Three-panel contrast. Let's start by introducing our panel. As this is our first episode, let me just say that we'll be rotating hosting duties throughout this podcast in the hopes of mixing things up a little bit. I do that responsibility for this episode, but we'll switch it up on a monthly basis. I'm Dr. Andrew DeMann. I am a lecturer at St. Jerome's University here on the campus of the University of Waterloo. I did my PhD in comics and have published extensively in the comics field. Uh, I am joined today by Dr. Michael Hancock. Hello, uh, Michael Hancock here. I'm a little less familiar with comic studies and superhero studies in general than my co-hosts, but I, I bring much enthusiasm to the role instead. Uh, my main area is game studies, and my work can roughly be described as looking at the intersection between narrative and games. I am currently an instructor for the University of Waterloo's English department, and I am at this moment teaching a course in Harry Potter. Thank you. And I'm also joined by Dr. Anna Papard. Hello, um, I'm Anna Papard. I did my PhD at York University, for which I wrote about representations of the body in Marvel Comics. I'm currently an incoming postdoctoral fellow at Brock University, where I might be doing a comics-related project as well. Um, I usually study representations of the body in different forms of media, especially comics. Representations of gender in superhero comics is one of my main interests, which is going to make today's discussion particularly exciting for me. So the first text that we're working with today is Ms. Marvel, and Anna's going to walk us through that. So, as Andrew mentioned at the beginning of the pod, um, we're looking today at the first six issues of Ms. Marvel Volume 3, written by G. Willow Wilson with art by Adrian Alfona. Um, calling this Volume 3 is a bit confusing, that's sort of the comic book nerd way to refer to it. Um, what more of you are likely to know it as is the first volume of Kamala Khan's tenure as the titular Ms. Marvel. So because I know not all of our listeners are going to be super familiar with the history of Ms. Marvel, the character, um, I'm just going to do a bit of background, which I think should be helpful for our discussion of why Kamala is both different and similar to previous superheroes, and especially why she, why she matters as a superhero. Um, the original Ms. Marvel, aka NASA security chief turned magazine editor Carol Danvers, appeared in 1977 and was created by Jerry Conway and artist John Buscema. So the version of this version of the character was a kind of super-powered Gloria Steinem. Um, Steinem, of course, was an editor of Ms. Magazine, which featured Wonder Woman on the cover of, of its first issue in 1972. And Carol Danvers in Ms. Marvel number four features herself as Ms. Marvel on the cover of the first issue of a feminist magazine she edits called Woman Magazine. The Ms. title, of course, is also a reference to Steinem. So Carol Danvers, as Ms. Marvel, had another 50-plus issue solo series beginning in 2006 under writer Brian Reed, and then finally got promoted to Captain Marvel in 2012 under the reins of her first female writer, Kelly Sue DeConnick. 
This name change came with a rejuvenation of Carol's feminist roots and a new costume that incorporates the colors and logo of her original costume, but includes, for the first time, full coverage pants and boots that don't have high heels. Since 2012, Carol's been more popular than she's ever been before. She's also been promoted as Marvel's premier female superhero, sort of their version of Wonder Woman. And in keeping with this, she's going to be the star of Marvel Studios' first film starring a female superhero. So this context is important to Kamala Khan because Kamala's series is very much in conversation with Carol's history and especially her rejuvenation. The success of Carol as Captain Marvel kind of paved the way for Kamala and also I would argue for a lot of other new and revamped female superheroes who started to appear both Marvel and DC after 2012, um, including Batgirl. So Kamala Khan is a Pakistani-American Muslim teenager who lives in Jersey City with her parents and her older, more traditionally devout brother. In this first Miss Marvel series, Ms. Marvel, Kamala Khan, encounters a cloud of what's called Terrigen Mist that activates her dominant inhuman genes, granting her polymorphic powers. So basically the ability to stretch and bend and transform her body into any shape that she wants. And we're gonna talk a lot more today about her powers, um, but one of the things I just wanted to highlight before we do that was what a big deal this comic was when it was released. So the creation of Kamala in 2014 was greeted with a lot of publicity. Um, I followed it fairly closely at the time, and I always know that something's a big deal when my parents ask me about it, and they ask me about Kamala a lot. We heard about this new comic book, it was on CBC Radio, etc. Um, it's sort of equal parts cool and a little bit sad that the creation of Kamala was such big news. On the sadder side, the fact that she was such big news tells us a lot about America's very troubled relationship with Muslims in the post-9-11 era. Um, so her debut was almost universally praised by critics, um, and it's been extremely commercially successful. And we're going to talk today about why it was successful, and because we're critics, we're also going to try, if we can, to find a few things to criticize. And Michael will walk us through Batgirl. Batgirl has had a very long and complicated history, both as uh, Barbara Gordon and not. It begins in 1961 with a different character entirely, Betty Kane, the niece of wealthy socialite Catherine Kane. Uh, Catherine Kane, aka Batwoman, was introduced to the series as a love interest for Batman. And she was actually introduced to counter accusations in Frederick Wortham's 1954 Seduction of the Innocent, which claimed there were homoerotic overtones between Batman and Robin. So Betty Kane, like her aunt, was created to serve as a love interest for another character. She's Robin's narrative beard, and together they all create a quasi-nuclear bat family. In 1967, Barbara Gordon debuted as Batgirl to bring a female presence into the TV show and actually appeared in the comics slightly beforehand. She appears regularly in detective comics and it emphasizes her education, that she is a has a PhD in library science, and in the 70s, there's a plot line where she runs, runs for election and joins the House of Representatives, though she continues to appear in comics on a semi-regular basis. Uh, in 1988, a retired Batgirl is shot and crippled by Joker in Alan Moore and Brian Boland's The Killing Joke. This happens largely to bring grief to Jim Gordon, so this Joker can make a philosophical argument with Batman. 
Later that year, the Oracle starts to appear as an information broker in John Ostrander's Suicide Squad, and a year later, Ostrander reveals that this figure is indeed Barbara Gordon. Uh, Barbara Gordon as Oracle continues to play a minor role in forming other characters until 1996, where she becomes the leader and behind-the-scenes worker for the Birds of Prey. Uh, there's a brief period in 1999 where it's the role of Batgirl is taken up by Helena Bart Bartinelli, but the major shift is in the year 2000, when a new Batgirl, Cass Cassandra Kane, is introduced as the lead for the first Batgirl ongoing series. Kane was raised by her father to be the perfect assassin, but rebels against it, and Batman and Barbara take over her rehabilitation. She begins the series largely nonverbal, and her comic is interesting as an example of minimalist dialogue. It is actually the longest-running Batgirl series, as it runs for 73 issues until 2006. Now, in 2009, Kane passes the mantle of Batgirl to Stephanie Brown, who used to go by the name Spoiler, and Stephanie Brown balances being Batgirl with being a college student and has Barbara Gordon as her mentor, as she did for Kane. Uh, this provides uh, extremes for the character, that Batgirl is frequently either this more valley girl type that Kane represents, or Brown represents, or the deadly assassin that Kane represents. Uh, Stephanie Brown's comic runs 24 issues until 2011. Now at this point, DC rebooted its comic book universe. Everything started from the very beginning, with the exception of the Bat books that did a semi-reboot. Barbara Gordon takes over the lead as Batgirl, and specifically, she is a Batgirl who can now walk. The event with the Joker still happened, but she somehow recovered. Longtime Birds of Prey writer Gail Simone served as original writer for this new series, providing some continuity with the older versions of the character. Now, that brings us more or less up to date. In 2014, with issue 35 of the book, uh, debuting six months after the, after the start of Ms. Marvel, it undergoes a soft reboot as new creative team of writers Cameron Stewart and Brendan Fletcher and artist Babs Tarr take over. Uh, this particular version of Barbara Gordon is much younger and more, I dare say, hipster-like than previous interpretations. She's going to college in Burnside, the trendy side of Gotham. The tone is notably lighter than Simone's run that came immediately before it, as Simone's run featured such things as Barbara dealing heavily with her psychopathic brother. We're going to be looking at the first volume of this series, uh, which covers issue 35 to 40, and sets up Barbara's new status quo as a cash-strapped graduate student and sees her facing off against her past self in the form of a computer AI built out of her fear and anger that accumulated during her rehabilitation from the Joker attack. The Batgirl of Burnside is a definite shift for the character, but rather being some abandonment of a past set in stone, it's a turn in history that's been full of turns. In particular, it's a shift deliberately marketed towards a changing comic book market, and one that's more interested in fully embracing diverse, socially engaged, tech-savvy characters. The question of the moment, then, is how successful the team is in doing that. The run has had its share of critics, and frankly, I was and am one of them. In rereading it for the show, I've come to appreciate them a little more, and as an aside, I love this creative team's original series, Motor Crush, which is a queer, gender-flipped take on Speed Racer, 
but when the issues first came out, they had three immediate strikes against them. I felt like it was an abandoning of who Barbara was in favor of an interpretation that DC had already explored and has in Stephanie Brown. And to cap off that abandoning, the run is immediately after Gail Simone's, a writer who had written the, the character for years. Second, in a run that's aiming to embrace diversity, it immediately has missteps with the apparent removal of the series transgender character Alyssa and some potentially transphobic betrayals in issue seven that we are gonna get into. And finally, there's the specter of Oracle that hangs over the book. It seems like the wheelchair-bound Oracle had been removed with this new version of Babs in mind, and the erasure of DC's most prominent disabled character also seems like a step against this commitment to diversity. I wound up liking the book a little more on the reread, but I'm still more interested in how it struggles against this past rather than saying that it overcomes it. So one of the more interesting elements that I think about um, with the Batgirl of Burnside is the incorporation of fashion, uh, certainly in contrast to Simone's run uh, and to others as well. It seems like this is playing a major role in establishing uh, the particular voice of this text. Um, what did you think about fashion in the Batgirl of Burnside, Michael? Um, I talked about this a bit with you guys before that I think maybe the most... Since I'm not someone who's particularly interested in cosplaying, um, I don't tend to evaluate costumes in terms of practicality and so forth, but I know that's something that a lot of people really appreciated with the old version, and that uh, currently uh, they're doing a costume that is more year one Batgirl, and I know people have expressed disappointment that it is less easy to cosplay. And just to clarify, when you say the old version, you mean the Batgirl of Burnside version, which has now become yes. the old version, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> As opposed to the version in Simone's run or any of the other. Yeah. Vice versa. Yeah, for sure. Well, if we go back in comics history, there's a really strong thread of fashion being a pivotal element for female characters, including like um, uh, actually having fashion cutouts uh, yeah. with a female comics character. Um, I think from a more contemporary perspective, this is sometimes looked at as problematic, the idea that we're, we're saying that the superheroine values appearance over superhero functionality. When Wonder Woman wears high heels, how many people die as a result of that terrible, terrible choice? Um, I didn't feel that way with Batgirl of Burnside. I, I think fashion is a really cool thing. It's, a, it's an awesome thing to incorporate. I'm just wondering what either of you think in terms of how that book, if you agree, um, manages to dodge a potentially sexist connotation whilst incorporating all of these fashionable elements. Well, there's certainly, with Batgirl, a very heavy history of sexualization uh, in as far back as the so-called All Ages, uh, Batman 67. That's a, very, that's a very tight costume in comparison to her compatriots. Uh, and before these, this series, Barbara Gordon's most prominent role was in Birds of Prey, which had Ed Benz as an artist for most of it, so a lot of cheesecake going on there. Mm -hmm. This is a very interesting shift in the character in that sense. I mean, yeah, I mean, you brought up the cutouts that used to appear in old comics and stuff. I think it's worth pointing out that a lot of those old cutouts actually used to be fashions submitted by readers to mm -hmm. strips like some of the Working Girl comics, stuff like Winnie Winkle, stuff like Brenda Starr. 
Um, so women would submit fashion designs and then they would be drawn by the artist. And then it, it, so I just, I bring it up because it's an element of like participatory culture for, for women that sort of fits with certain female fan practices. And again, I don't want to centralize anything. Not every woman is into fashion. Not every woman is into paper dolls. Not every woman is into crafting, which is another very stereotypical <laughs> female thing. I know they, at least in my experience, they tended to crop up the most in Archie comics, which have more of yeah, them in all yeah. ages, right. or, all, or of wider audience interest. But I mean, in terms of the Batgirl thing being cosplayable, I mean, that's a way that you're designing the costume to be accessible to women, like not just in terms of her being, you know, less sexualized in this costume. There, there are some art notes that are included in the back of the trade paperback version of the first collection of Batgirl, Burnside, where it says her jacket is leather, not spandex, and it has an image that shows to what we call the boob sock look, um, colloquially, or with the perfectly separated breasts inside of the spandex, which is not how spandex or breasts work, um, versus the jacket that she wears in Batgirl of Burnside, which is a leather jacket that, you know, has the definition of her breasts existing, but not individually defined breasts. Um, so it's less sexualized in that sense, but I mean, being more accessible to women in the sense that it's, it's cosplayable. And specifically, it's made up of items that you could buy in the real world at vintage stores or other stores and just put together and wear. You know, the boots are Doc Martens. They're not special, you know, Bruce Wayne invented boots or anything. The jacket is like, you know, a leather like moto jacket. It's something that, you know, a lot of people might already have. Um, and that's certainly something that's very important. And again, not to essentialize it, not every woman is into fashion. This might not be an important aspect to them, but it's certainly something that was designed with the intent of, of reaching women, I think, like very, very, very intentionally. Well, I think that essentialization is, is an important issue because I would argue that one of the things that makes this work for me is the fact that that fashion element is integrated into Barbara's character. Yeah. Uh, and many scenes mm. in the story involve her going shopping with her friends and yeah. stuff like that. So there's a there's a contribution to the narrative to the character development that I think works. Yeah, and I mean, if we want to transition to comparing though the fashion in Batgirl versus the fashion in Ms. Marvel, because I know I have a particular lot of opinions about this, being someone who's into both fashion and superheroes and superhero fashion. But um, one of the complaints that I would say that I had with Batgirl in terms of fashion, first of all, that the fashion doesn't always match the characters, and that it's a bit too universal it's a bit too not specific to specific characters as much as i would like to see if fashion's going to be truly meaningful there's a bit of a generic like you know winners tj maxx contemporary section look to a lot of these clothes i mean you know everybody's wearing crop top and ripped jeans and like shorty shorts which I get that they're making a point about that being representative of a certain culture of women. I don't feel convinced that that does represent women in their early 20s at graduate school. Um, mm. <laughs> but uh, at the same time, you know, it's a vision. Yeah, it's a comic book version of women in their 20s. Yeah, it does make it a nice metaphor for the series overall attempts at diversity. Yeah, sure. Whereas in Ms. Marvel, and we get, again, in, in the first trade collection of, of Ms. Marvel Volume 1, we get some wonderful sketches of the different characters' fashions, and they're all very unique and individual. We have kind of the Zoe Zimmerman character, that the concerned troll character we talked about before, um, does have sort of the look of a lot of the characters of Batgirl of Burnside, the short shorts, kind of like the crop tops, that type of thing, the off-shoulder shirts, whereas Nakia has a very kind of fashion forward style with you know high-waisted tight and colorful pants 
and various like amazing sort of fuzzy vests. And Kamala has like a bit of a, for lack of a better word, tomboy style, which is sort of cosplay inspired, crafting inspired, where she's got these Captain America and Ms. Marvel jackets that she's clearly made herself. Mm-hmm. And she also sort of has aspects of contemporary fashion, like the outfit that she's wearing in the first few issues where she's got the bright pink tights and the shorts and the army jacket but you'll notice that when she wears shorts they're not shorty shorts she has a different type and length of shorts than the zoe character and those differences might seem subtle to me as a female reader they did a lot to express how these different characters are different and i saw that done with a lot more nuance and intelligence than i saw it done in batgirl there was a bit of a uniform look to the characters I would like to state for the record that I very much like Kamala's hat with the flaps. It's amazing. Uh, I have a very similar one, so I identify with that for sure. And more seriously, I mean, this is fashion, it's so obvious that it hits me that uh, that it's really relevant to who she is, that mm-hmm. she incorporates mm-hmm. the burkini, burkini mm-hmm. into her costume. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, one of the things too about female superhero costumes is that, so the superhero costume is supposed to, so the comic scholar, scholar Peter Coogan talks about it, you know, representing their mission, identity, and powers, you know, those things are, are encapsulated in the superhero costume, you know, it's got like a symbol, it's got colors, it's got, you know, a shape or ornaments that express all of those things, right, it's the sign of individual identity. Female superheroes a lot of the time haven't been able to participate completely in that convention because their costumes prioritize sexiness above character. Um, that's certainly something we saw with, you know, the Black Lightning Bolt Ms. Marvel costume. Um, sorry, that would be the Carol Danvers version of Ms. Marvel. Um, whereas Kamala, yeah, it's wonderful. She's got this bathing suit that is uh, the bikini bathing suit that she turns into her costume and it's you know a statement of her individual identity it's a statement of her hybridity it's a statement of her remaking her culture to suit her own ends plus whereas most female superheroes are inspired by male superheroes and have symbols and costumes that are also inspired by them she has a costume that's inspired by a female superhero in the form of carol danvers so we have kind of a female mentorship a female fandom a female continuity going on there even though ms marvel carol danvers was inspired by a male superhero we have carol now becoming the most iconic version of that look the most iconic version of the captain marvel character and kamala being inspired to become a superhero through that which is really important I think it's also maybe important that she engages with that sort of preconception. She yes. dreams of where yes. Carol Danvers yes, costume, yes, yes. and she does, and it gives her a wedgie. Yeah, and I love the way it's handled. Again, I'm, I feel like I'm monopolizing too much of the time here, but you know, as someone who studies female superheroes a lot, and you know, is a woman who like you know, <laughs> in this world. Um, I've read and listened to a lot of, you know, papers and read a lot of, you know, articles and essays about the sexualization of women in comics. And one of my complaints about it is it often excludes the complicatedness of women's perceptions of that sexualization. There are elements of empowerment in Carol Danvers' old black lightning bolt bathing suit costume I mean that she can be that sexy and that powerful and walk around with a wedgie and like not be concerned about that is powerful in a way and I do feel a little bit about that with certain characters like that and I've talked to other women who do feel the same I mean we're slut shamed as much as you know we're sexualized right so the idea of like letting it all hang out and feeling confident is a bit of a power fantasy right But what's really great about the way it's handled in Ms. Marvel is that we see Kamala Khan having that reaction, 
but it doesn't ultimately fit who she is. She does like run up against the reality of it not being right for her, but emphasizing that reaction as being a reaction that women can and do have was one of the things that I thought was really true to sort of, I don't want to say female psychology because that sounds essentializing again, but it was a very, it added a lot of legitimacy and sort of individuality and realness to the character, I felt. So let's talk about the superpowers of these two superheroes. Um, maybe we'll start with Kamala Khan. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I find like the most revolution, well, I should say the smartest thing, one of the smartest things about what is a very smart comic is the design and nature of Kamala's powers. So similar to superhero costumes, you know, powers are part of the identity of the superhero, right? They're part of the representation, you know, what that superhero means, right? And female superheroes, they've often had what's often colloquially called um, strike a pose and point powers, you know, something like you're Jean Grey, you stand yeah. on the outside of the battle, point a light ray at something while doing a <laughs> hip turn pose, right? Um, Kamala's powers are great though because her body morphs when she uses her powers, her body changes into these kind of strange shapes when she uses her powers, um, which almost makes her like unobjectifiable, at least like in a traditional sense. She can't strike a pose and point because that's just not the nature of her powers. If she's using her powers, it's going to disrupt the male gaze like inherently, mm -hmm. which I think is so smart because that means if someone else is writing or drawing the character, which you know is going to happen in the context of writing comic books for one of the big two publishers, you're guarding against even future possibilities of her being sexualized. Because again, if you're going to show her using her powers, it's always going to be disrupting that gaze. It's just, it's built into the character. And her powers are also a metaphor for her struggle, for her hybridity, for her multiplicity, for her, for her hybrid, you know, American-Pakistani identity or hybrid Muslim-American identity. I know that that's not, that shouldn't be a duality, but given the climate of American politics, that's become a duality. I, I don't know if this is a pushback. This might be a mm -hmm. different... Taken individually, each one of her powers is kind of derivative, right? Mm -hmm. that yeah. She's, she can stretch like yeah. Mr. Fantastic. Yeah. She can grow and shrink like Giant Man. Mm -hmm. uh, she can change shape like any number of characters. But And likewise, when we get to actually how did she get her powers, uh, she got it the same way every other inhuman of that era got mm -hmm. their powers. Mm -hmm. But I think that's almost a benefit to her character that... Mm -hmm. We, it, you don't have to go far back in comic book history to find Muslim characters who are defined in really stereotypical ways. I'm thinking of like the X-Men's Dust. That's who I was yeah, thinking. Sure. Yeah. And that her powers are versatile is a really great reflection of who, as he said, who she is. That she fits in all of these different places, that her identity is moving. Um, I think it's also worth noting that she is maybe the only shape or character with the ability to shape shift I can think of whose power is not framed as a form of deception. Right. Yeah. Well I was actually thinking about that as well, the the comparison to Mystique, who mm -hmm. was a Ms. Marvel villain originally. Um, Mystique's ability to uh, be a metamorph um, frequently used to sexualize that character. Mm -hmm. And I think it is interesting that Kamala is able to explore what it's like to make her body look like Carol Danvers or make herself look like the most popular girl in school. And then still, um, as Anna's saying, have these moments of um, um, just 
something entirely different from that. Yeah, it's, it's such a great part of her first arc that she becomes more confident of her own image as a superhero as it goes. Right. How does this compare to Bad Girl? Um, all right. This is one of the things that I disliked about the series, uh, that in part of Batgirl's costume is a symbol of let's strip the character back, but and likewise her powers are let's strip this back a bit, but also it's stripped back in a way that diminishes, I think, what does make her unique, that... Uh, why does she lose these powers? She loses them because she screwed up and a fire burnt down her friend's place. Mm-hmm. Uh, why does? What does she have in terms of, of bat gadgets? She has the stuff that uh, another character, Kadir, makes for her. Mm-hmm. And conceptually, Kadir is neat. He's a Muslim character. Q equals Kadir. That's fine, good pun. Uh, but also, <laughs> like... I really have a sense Barbara shouldn't need a cue. Barbara should be a cue. Yeah, yeah. That she is smart. And like it, it gets even more pronounced in the next volume of the series where Frankie starts taking a more prominent role in doing tech support. And that, that, is, like, that is who Barbara is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, both books kind of emphasize that you know, community aspect of the heroism, which has connotations of femininess or female community. I mean, even though not all the characters are women, it's sort of like a difference from that stoic individualist male superhero who is the stereotypical protagonist in Mm -hmm. superhero comics. But I think that that is a good example of like how things arguably are done a little bit better and with more nuance in Ms. Marvel than they are in Batgirl. I mean... Kamala is smart in Ms. Marvel, you know, mm-hmm. but she's also kind of like English smart. She like mm-hmm. writes fanfics. She's sort of like, she's not necessarily a math nerd. So she has a friend who is more scientific right. and like that makes a little bit more sense. Whereas I, I totally get the point you're making with and Barbara where she has these skills anyway. So why does she need a supplemental person doing that? I get the intent you know, to show her working in that team, but she works in a team that seems to undercut her own individuality and considerable powers, which had been demonstrated in previous series. So one of the more prominent ways in which superheroes are defined in superhero comics is through what they oppose, and frequently that constitutes who they oppose. So let's talk a little bit about villains in Ms. Marvel and Batgirl, and I think there's a a fair bit to discuss there. Um, I thought maybe I'd open with a blunt question. Um, Does Ms. Marvel have bad villains? (laughs) I mean, Michael was sort of talking about this before. I don't know if you want to take that one. Yeah, sure. I think one of the issues that you could possibly take with the first arc of Ms. Marvel is that it presents an overarching villain plot but never reveals the overarching villain. And when it does, he's a giant parakeet. <laughs> there is no... Uh, the really classic villains, for the most part, are characters who reflect on some aspect mm-hmm. of the hero, and we don't get that from Ms. Marvel for quite some time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely see that as well. I mean, it, it, it's it, it's hard for me to think about how it would have been different because I can see the fear of it being really heavy-handed and there are some later issues of it where she's kind of battling sort of like a Nazi anti-diversity order squad that like, you know, it does get quite heavy-handed and I, I'm glad that that's not present in the first issue, which is more sort of character work, sort of world-building. 
but but yeah, I, I I do think it's a potential a potential point of criticism that you know she doesn't have a, a necessarily really meaningful villain like in her series certainly at the beginning and, and perhaps overall she doesn't really have a clearly established arch nemesis as yet that you can kind of associate with the character so i'm pretty sure dc comics doesn't want us to talk about dagger type but we should probably <laughs> talk about dagger type yeah um batgirl has a series of minor villains that lead up to a more major villain at the end of the that particular arc um, we'll skip talking about the villain it leads up to because that leads to another issue that we're going to get to later but for the most part well let's do dagger type first <laughs> uh, she goes up basically against a series of villains who have some issue with identity and theft uh, dagger type is a character who has appeared a f- a little before, I mean, this is the third issue of the run, so it's pretty early still. Uh, Dagger type has been dressing up as uh, Batgirl in order to basically drag her reputation through the mud. Uh, this series, is, this original moment is one of the series' missteps in representation, particularly that uh, the revelation that this faux Batgirl is actually the male presenting dagger type. Uh, this revelation is handled in a way that is initially inter- can be really easily interpreted as transphobic mm-hmm. uh, to the point that not only did the creators issue an apology, the collected version <laughs> literally rewrote the scenes. That originally dagger type talks about their revealing themselves as Batgirl to be their becoming. And Batgirl's initial response is, but you're a... And both of these have been excised from the collected edition. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I found that scene offensive when I first saw it. I wasn't regularly reading this title when it first came out. Um, I read it later, and obviously I've read it several times now in preparation for this podcast. Every time I read it, I find it more disturbing. I mean, it's just thing after thing after thing of, you know, transphobic stereotypes, stereotypes about trans people, trans people being deceptive, trans Mm -hmm. people being childish, trans people being not real women. I mean, it goes really heavy on the like, Barbara being super, super offended that this like male presenting person has pretended to be her, which even beyond issues of transphobia, it's like a anti-gender diversity thing almost, because I mean, partly what disturbs me on a personal level like about it is like I can sort of see myself as the dagger type character. I'd be that character that doesn't present as effortlessly femininely as Barbara does, and she's telling me I can never be her just because of that, and I, I find that upsetting. I, it's not a good message for a book that's trying to like reach out to female readers, that's trying to like have a certain ethic of gender diversity, a certain ethic of inclusiveness. It's, it's, it's so intensely problematic that I, it, it's close to like signing the death warrant of this series, like, you know, just in terms of the audience that this series was supposed to appeal to, and, and, and I know a lot of people jumped off the series like because, mm-hmm. because of that choice of villain and the way it was handled. Mm-hmm. And it, this was already the second strike of the series when it comes to transgender representation. Yes. That 
Uh, Gail Simone's run essentially ends with Barbara and her roommate, uh, Alyssa, who is a transgender character. Uh, Barbara essentially says, or maybe it's Alyssa, one of them essentially says, we need to move somewhere new and get a fresh start together. And the almost the first scene of the reboot is Alyssa leaving her. <laughs> and it felt a lot to me when I first read it as we're writing this character out. Mm-hmm. Now they bring her back in later. It feels in part, though, kind of a reaction to their other missteps that the second volume features Alyssa's wedding very prominently but it feels like a correction more than something that was always intended and it it feels a little bit diversity in name only because I mean look like a trans character exists in this story but she doesn't she's not part of the story we don't see her you know dealing with issues of transphobia or anything within the context of the comic I mean she is, for all intents and purposes, written out of it and then crops up almost for reasons of guilt, you know? Mm-hmm. But she's not a big part of the series, and I do think that's a significant misstep as well. To introduce sort of one of the first prominent, you know, trans characters in that universe only to take her away again in an issue that, again, was supposed to be about being more inclusive is, is a significant misstep. <laughs> So both of these texts present a distinctive visual style, both from each other and I would argue from the house styles that were coming out at the same time, Uh, although there are certain trends embedded in what we're seeing in both of them. Um, Anna, what can you tell us about the visual style of Ms. Marvel and Alfona's work? Yeah, so he definitely brings a unique visual flair to this book. He has a very, I would say, idiosyncratic style. sort of detailed line work. He's very good with expressions and fashion, as we already talked about a little bit before. I think there's just, his work is very effective at world building. He's very effective at making this a unique seeming world, making this an interesting world. He does these wonderful things all the time with little background details, little jokes kind of built into the landscape and stuff, which seem... They're expressive of something about Kamala's character, right? They're expressive about something about her idiosyncrasies, you know, her dreams, her fantasies, like little things like her toy sloth gets like inter- like put in a lot of different sort of dream sequences and images and stuff. And it's little touches like that that give the book a really strong identity that, you know, gives it that sense of identification once mm-hmm. again, right? Um, But definitely like his expression work, you know, his design of different body types, I think is excellent. Um, And definitely not some, that's one of the things that makes it sort of not in step with the house style of a lot of superhero comics where we see people with pretty, you know, similar body types, regardless of whether they're police officers or superheroes. Um, And yeah, it's definitely one of the, the wonderful, wonderful, wonderful things about this book. Yeah, it has kind of a hyperbolic quality in his, his postures, his gestures, yeah. his facial expression. It's a soft style in a lot of ways as well. I mean, it's, it's softly mm-hmm. colored as well, yeah. which is like another kind of aspect about it and like the detail of the line work and everything. So it's it's got that pop and punch, but, you know, it's realism for lack of a better word, too. I mean, it's not done in like punchy traditional superhero comic colors necessarily it's a bit of an indie superhero kind of vibe which you know is part of it trying to differentiate itself from the mainstream a little a little bit and michael do you think batgirl has pop and punch uh, (laughs) a quick word on the ms marvel one because 
He is so excellent. Yes. I don't know whether this credit goes to the letterer or to the artist, but my favorite is the fire extinguisher in the store, which is clearly labeled Die, Fire, Die. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. just, I would say the exaggerated almost goes as far as to be deliberate parody or satire at times. I'm, I swear that some of the slight distortions of Zoe's neck in the first volume or so, like this is almost a swan-like thing going on mm -hmm. with her. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the design of characters' bodies is really significant in terms of sort of, you know, uh, someone like Zoe having that very gazelle-like body and not mm -hmm. being sort of ultra-emphasized. Um, as far as Batgirl goes, I'm going to uh, put the disclaimer at front that I'm not great with visual style and picking up details in general. But even I can see that there's a marked departure in here from especially the usual DC style. Mm -hmm. This is, it gets really pronounced when you look at, in the next volume, uh, Batgirl's first annual, where each, where she interacts with a number of other Bat-related characters, and they're each done in the style of their respective books. Mm -hmm. And it's so clear that she does not fit with them. Mm -hmm. uh, it's more... It's really interesting because it's cartoonish in a way, and it's cartoonish in a way that Tar's other series, Motor Crash, isn't. Mm. So it's a deliberate choice. Um, I think it allows on occasion for some uh, comic work that doesn't, it, it's not carried off as well as Ms. Marvel, frankly, but it's there in some, that's, you know, using more abstract versions to show the character's surprise or things along those lines, exaggerating it. Uh, I think the, where we can start on the detracting points would be that it's generally a really similar body type. Yeah. And that gets a little monotone after a time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we definitely, I would say in contrast to Ms. Marvel, sort of everybody, all of Batgirl's female friends tend to have the same body type and it's... There's much greater variety of body types in Motor Crush and it's almost like this series <laughs> is the creative team's training wheels. Right. Well, I mean, I wonder if we want to talk about the process of creating the artwork in Batgirl at all because we have kind of Babstar being brought on board, but almost in a mentorship role with... Yeah. I don't know anything oh, about okay. this, so go ahead. Uh, well, because we got some of the sketches at the end of the volume, right? And this was present in some of the original issues too, I think, where, you know, some of the layouts were sketched out by Cameron Stewart, right? Mm -hmm. And then had like Tar kind of like put her style on it. Mm, uh, that's interesting. Which is sort of a way of... It seemed to me at the time like a very deliberate attempt to sort of incorporate more female artists and potentially, you know, like a female viewpoint in terms of having a woman working on the art. I mean, it, there's a lot fewer women drawing the contemporary female superhero comics than there are women writing them. Mm -hmm. And there has been a preference for a certain type of artwork that doesn't tend to be this style of artwork that a lot of female cartoonists right. prefer to work in, which sometimes, again, this is generalizing, but like a more manga style, a more, mm -hmm. you know, inspired by animation style, which has often been rejected by the big two publishers. For like the last 
belated Hellcat series. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And so, you know, we're starting to see that more. I, I, Bad Girl was sort of at the forefront of that. And yeah. whether it worked yeah. or not, it was trying to do something there, definitely. I would say two things about it relatively briefly. Um, the first is the contrast between this run and Gail Simone's run with the art that was defined mm -hmm. by Arden Saif. Mm -hmm. um, that, that staunch, gritty, very consistent with the other stuff that's being put out by DC. Uh, I think that, that sent a message. It was almost this idea of um, we're taking Batgirl in a direction that I kind of read as frivolous just based on some of the imagery, um, which I think is maybe not fair. Um, on the other side of it, I would say that um, I would define this style almost being webcomic-ish. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. uh, and to me, that actually works thematically with the, the mm -hmm. new media element uh, that Batgirl was dealing with a little bit. So I'm, I'm completely different sides here. I'm, I'm saying I hated how different it was and how much it signaled that we're not doing Gail Simone's Batgirl anymore. I was mad because I'm a Gail Simone fan. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then after reading it, I, I kind of appreciated what it was accomplishing in terms of connecting to um, some of the thematic elements that it was working mm -hmm. with. So it's, I think, our body type aside, it's one of the more highlights of the run. Would we go that far? Not quite <laughs> well, that far. Well, I mean, the I fact do, that I, I paused so long. I, 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 would, I would go with that. I appreciate what it's trying to do, and I do like I do like some of the style in it in Batgirl quite a bit. I, I do like you know it's very colorful. You know, some of the fashion yeah. is incredibly fun. I mean, it's just that my issue with the fashion is that it doesn't necessarily speak to character as effectively as it could be because it's a bit samey. Right. It's just spectacle. Yeah. Yeah. So each month, in addition to talking about some great comics that are out there, we would also like to cover a little bit of the academic world with a discussion of um, prominent academic texts that have been published. Uh, for our first episode, Anna is going to talk to us about Carolyn Coca's Superwomen, Gender, Power, and Representation. So this has quickly become sort of an essential book for anyone interested in issues of representation in mainstream comics. Um, it was published in 2016 by Bloomsbury, and it won the Eisner Award at San Diego Comic-Con for comic scholarship. Uh, so the book doesn't just focus on comics, it also talks about transmedia interactions between comics, television, animation, and movies, uh, but comics occupy a majority of the book. Well, this d book doesn't, I would say, present a lot of truly new stuff in terms of a lot of truly new arguments or history. It assembles a lot of existing arguments and history in one place better than I think anyone had really done before. And I think this might be the most valuable thing about the book. It assembles all this stuff in a particularly accessible way. This is that rare academic book that you can actually read and even enjoy if you're a non-academic. It's written in a very straightforward style with hardly any jargon, and when Koga does use academic-y concepts, she's careful to explain them in clear language. In terms of what it's actually got in it, um, we've got it divided into six chapters. Um, each chapter focuses on a certain character, a set of characters. So we've got a chapter about Wonder Woman, a chapter about various Batgirls, um, a chapter about um, various representations of women in the Star Wars universe, especially Princess Leia and her family. We've got something about the X-Women, so the women of X-Men comics. We've got something about Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And finally, a chapter about various iterations of Ms. and Captain Marvel. So obviously, topics very relevant to our discussion today. The organizing thesis of Coca's book is that represent representation matters. And by this, Coca means whether girls and women are represented in popular media and how they're represented can and does have important real-world effects and consequences. 
In her intro and conclusion, Coca does a good job laying out the stark statistics related to female representation across multiple forms of media. How female superheroes are about 11% of the population of contemporary superhero comics, 30% of the speaking roles in popular movies, and how queer women and women of color, as well as women with disabilities, are even less visible. And of course, the fact that even when women are represented, they tend to be represented in very stereotypical ways, i.e. within the context of romantic heterosexual relationships, or very problematic ways that reinforce gender hierarchies, um, i.e. even heroic women are usually presented as sexual objects to an extent that their subjecthood is often threatened. Coca argues that given the starkness of the discrepancy between how female characters and male characters are represented in comics and other media, um, Anyone who thinks that media has any effect on people's viewpoints and behavior has to see this discrepancy as a huge problem. I'm sure there are some incels and men's rights activists out there who'd find a way to disagree with Coca here, but for the rest of us, it's a, it's a pretty convincing argument. I've said a little bit about what I like about this book, but I think it's also worth mentioning just a couple of things that I don't totally love about it with the caveat that these criticisms are grounded in my personal position as someone who's already fairly well-versed in a lot of the topics and history this book covers. For me personally, the same straightforwardness that's one of the book's great strengths is sometimes just a teeny bit frustrating. I often wished Coca would get just a little bit more in-depth with her analysis. Several of the chapters feature a lot of plot summary. The Batgirl and Ms. Marvel chapters, for instance, provide some really useful histories of these characters in conversation with evolving social contexts but they don't do a lot of breaking down individual stories and images. There are a lot of instances where Coco will say things like, in this series, Batgirl is not sexualized, but then sort of leave things at that, which is frustrating for me because every issue of every series can be very different, and images within the same issue can also be very different, especially when multiple artists work on the same book and when we're factoring in things like variant covers. But again, this complaint is coming from my particular position as an academic who also produces work on these topics. To an extent that this is a problem, it can be solved in the same way that Coca says the problem of female superheroes can be solved by having more books on this topic, by having better representation. On a non-academic, personal level, even for someone like me who thinks about this stuff a lot, Coca's evidence for how and why representation matters was convincing enough to make me reflect on how I haven't always understood or appreciated this fact as well as I should have. When I was 10 years old, I can honestly say that I did not have any fictional characters I looked up to who were female. This is kind of devastating, um, but I think, and I think it was certainly a factor in what a lot of people who know me now might be surprised to know was sort of a rocky journey toward calling myself a feminist. But this is once again a hopeful observation as well as a potentially sad one. The fact that I can't even imagine having had something like Ms. Marvel, so the Kamal Khan Ms. Marvel I should specify when I was a young girl, or a show like Supergirl, or a movie like The Force Awakens, emphasizes how much has changed in a relatively short period of time. And I'm hopeful that we'll see the results of that in the next generation of women. The fact that girls finally get to swing their own lightsabers in Star Wars movies might seem like a minor thing, given all of the very real ways in which girls and women continue to be excluded and hurt in places that aren't a galaxy far, far away. But as Coca says, representation does matter. Encouraging girls to imagine themselves as heroes and leaders doesn't automatically change the world, but it can certainly help make girls believe that they can change the world. So both of these texts present uh, young, 
characters and would seem to try and speak to a contemporary youth culture. Uh, the question then becoming how well do they actually hit that target? Uh, Michael, what's your take on Batgirl in that regard? Uh, not great for the most part. That uh, One of the things that was very strong about previous Batgirl series is that it also featured younger protagonists with Cassandra Kane and Stephanie Brown, but in both cases their view was anchored more or less by an older mentor figure. In fact, Barbara Gordon herself played mentor figure for both of them. Right. And that absence of any sort of older voice in this series sticks out like a sore thumb. Uh, moreover, the youth culture it does present feels very one note that we get a bunch of people replicating the same basic set of opinions. And I don't think Ms. Marvel falls into that trap. I mean, yeah, I, I definitely, I think you, there's space to criticize the generic hipsterdom of the Batgirl of Burnside universe. Mm -hmm. in, I'm an older millennial, but I technically fit into that category, and I, I was like, uh, a few times. You know, I mean, it's basically defined by, you know, going down to an indie cafe and, like, getting a complicated coffee beverage. Which, and... in later issues, Barbara Gordon destroys and feels absolutely no sympathy <laughs> at any point for it. Yeah. It, it is presented as, like, when a policeman chastises her for it, it's like, we're supposed to feel bad for Barbara. In terms of representations of youth culture in Ms. Marvel, I, I think it does a good job of, like, having that element that you need in a youth culture book of the characters being a little bit dumb, a little bit emotionally naive, mm -hmm. a little bit teenager-y, right? While still making them likable. Um, I, I can think of other Marvel series that, that didn't work as well in that regard. Um, the Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur series, which I liked in a lot of ways, really went hard on the child protagonist being quite... I don't want to say unlikable because I know that's subjective, but um, it's a difficult thing. It's a difficult balance to strike. She's I guess. very precocious. She is um, very precocious, <laughs> and you know, I think yeah. depending on your point of view, you can find that charming or not. But to me, it sort of depends on the character evolution. I mean, we do see even in the first six issues of Ms. Marvel, I think a character evolution mm -hmm. in Kamala of her being sort of you know everything's so hard for me, you know, my problems are so bad, you know, very much that sort of teenage narcissism and through her heroism, moving beyond that teenage narcissism to a more, you know, community-based vision to like greater empathy and understanding of people, like both the good and bad in people. She starts out sort of idolizing the, the Zoe Zimmerman character and then sort of realizes the issues with Zoe a little bit later. But I mean, in terms of her evolution of rejecting her culture to incorporating the things that she likes about her culture too is an important evolution that happens with her even over the course of the first six issues. And I think all of these things are part of making it a realistic sort of depiction of teenagerhood in terms of like the fallibility, the insecureness, the narcissism of teenagerhood, but also using the superhero metaphor to show her transition from that to a more adult identity. Um, something else I want to bring up in this context is that both series uh, delve heavily into one aspect or another of social media. Yes. Mm -hmm. and what did you think about that betrayal? I, I, maybe Ms. Marvel's the, the easier one, that this is very clearly putting her fanfic mm -hmm. uh, interest at the forefront. 
Well, I really liked the way that it handled the fan fiction stuff as, you know, someone who's written and read a lot of fan fiction in her day, as I know many female fans also have. Many female and male fans, but it does still tend to be a, a largely female community. Um, that I've seen gestures like that in comics, in superhero comics before, where it's been a bit more on the side of denigrating that thing. You know, you have a character that even when they're supposed to be, you know, a fan surrogate kind of character, they like have these Spanish behaviors that are part of, you know, identifying them as a loser. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we have a little bit of that with Ms. Marvel, but I also think it's part of the overall more optimistic tone of it. You know, she writes fan fiction and that like is a sign of her being quite nerdy, but it's also a sign of her being creative. It's also a sign of her being fundamentally optimistic about the superhero. And it's also part of the diversity mission of the book too. I mean, part of what makes fan fiction valuable is the ability to kind of rewrite these worlds basically right and not all fanfic does that in a politically conscious way but a lot of fanfic does you know do things like make characters who weren't queer before queer and sort of make the universe more diverse in that way or even just adding female perspectives because so many of those stories are written by women whereas so many mainstream superhero comics are not written by women and you know bringing that in as a positive aspect of kamala's character i thought was something I really enjoyed. You know, it didn't feel like as heavy-handed as a, of a fan surrogate kind of callback as that kind of gesture sometimes feels. I don't know if you guys had thoughts about that as well. I, I think what I find kind of interesting is, is in Ms. Marvel's case, the social media element is um, largely there to define her character mm -hmm. and uh, a little bit the setting to make it contemporary. Of yeah, for sure. Um, in Batgirl... <laughs> I don't know that it's deft or anything, but I like that we're building plot everywhere. Yeah. Batgirl, yeah. Like the Batgirl stories are often about social media yeah, in yeah, a way yeah. that Ms. Marvel isn't. Yeah. Um, so I think my best bet is to reflect that question back at you, Michael. And yeah. Uh, it's embedded even in the structure that mm -hmm. if with that little text box that establishes a scene like where we are uh, in this, in uh Batgirl, that text box is a checked-in notification. Right. Mm -hmm. And we get various uh, surrogates for pretty much every social media device. I think so much of this arc is about the idea that Batgirl needs to step in and take greater control of her identity, that uh, the iconic image of this series is Batgirl taking a selfie. Of herself, right? Mm -hmm. If there's a single image that sums it all up, it's that cover. Yep. Uh, and again, that's part of the youth culture it's embracing. If you want to be really, really generous towards the series, it all fits together thematically in the sense that uh, we eventually learn that the villain of the series is using Hook as a monitoring device. Yeah. No, Hook, and we should data say, is the, is the social media right. dating app that right. exists in that world. Yeah. It's Tinder. Yeah. Yeah. So it's Batgirl is like a Black Mirror episode. Right. And literally, almost, I think you could maybe put out the weird Japanese motocross girls. Yeah. But the rest of the series, almost pretty much every enemy is someone who uses social media. Right to steal something from people or to present images of themselves somewhere. But I mean, that's sort of, 
I can see a way that that series would do that that would be so great and I just don't think it is that <laughs> yeah. serious. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah, I mean, because I I mean, if I, I contrast agree. that with, like, the pr presentation of, like, Kamala's social media use, for her, it's a way, it's a positive form of self-expression, right? In Batgirl, as you said, everybody who's a social media user, it's negative. Well, you know, which yeah. sounds very much like, you dumb millennials, get off your phones. So I think one of the bigger issues with these two texts is, and probably the reason why we, we felt it appropriate to put them side by side, is that both of these characters represent legacy characters. These are um, characters who are named and to some degree defined by previous iterations of the character. In one case, other versions of uh, Batgirl uh, and other versions of Barbara Gordon, and in the other case, um, no other Kamala Khans, but different versions of Ms. Marvel. Um, so maybe in the interest of simplicity, we should start with Batgirl. Uh, yeah, so this, uh, perhaps maybe the biggest element here is that, and this was not done by this creative team, this was done by probably someone, an editor at DC at some point, it was decided that she would have her, or she would be given her ability to walk again, that it is essentially, and that was a decision that erased DC's and maybe all of superhero comics the most prominent disabled character, mm -hmm. which basically says you can't be a hero and in a wheelchair. And that is an erasure that really echoes over this series, especially when you move to that villain who I described before as an AI version of Barbara. It's not just that, it's a AI version of her when she was first was disabled in this interpretation. And that creates a relationship between Barbara and her past. Now there are ways that could have been done really well. Let's deal with this past. Let's think about what character she is, what she had to abandon, what she had, what she stands to gain. Instead, it's portrayed in pretty binary. You are in a dark place here. As a disabled person, you are, you need to get over this and you need to put all of your discomfort behind you you need to get rid of that and your disabled self is murderous mm -hmm. i mean one of the things that we need to keep in mind you know when we're talking about these issues of representation is you know that old truism but it's true that uh you know stories don't happen in a vacuum right so when you have that final confrontation between her between barbara gordon batgirl and the ai version of herself from when she was recently disabled if that was just a story specific to her, maybe it would be less problematic, but that's existing within a series of tropes about, especially about people in wheelchairs, mm -hmm. where, you know, they're so bitter about their lack of function that they become villainous. And I mean, I think that was even the original version of the Superman villain, the ultra humanite, was that he was a guy in a wheelchair who was bitter. We'd have to look that up. I shouldn't. But, um, you know, think about somebody like, you know, Mr. Potter from, like, It's a Wonderful Life. That's, like, basically that trope of that character. You know, like, a guy in a wheelchair who's bitter about his, like, a lack of physical function, his lack of belonging in society, and disability and villainy are, like, interconnected in that way, which essentializes able bodies and, and does so long, all of these things. Oracle was the counterpart yeah, to yeah, that yes. right. this was this well-rounded hero character and now that oracle past has been kind of revised into this really controlling 
cruel character. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Hmm. I definitely found that conclusion of this arc very kind of disturbing in that way. And I, and I think that there could have been a value to it in like discussing Barbara's complex negative feelings about her disability. No one expects her to like be totally happy about losing the use of her legs when she did used to have the use of her legs. Like that's not what's at issue here. I don't want her to be this also stereotypical, super positive version of disability, right? Nobody wants that, right? But I don't think she was that in her, I mean, in her character. One of the Oracle. easiest ways to resolve this story would have been the traditional, okay, you are a part of me that I must accept and integrate into myself. Yeah. Right. Like she downloads the computer version and in, they become one rather than these opposite forces. This is not that. This is let's erase you. Yeah, yeah which, you know literally erase you i mean again like as much as there's something positive of wanting to erase the misogynistic mistake of uh, the joker shooting barbara and taking the sexualized pictures of her so you know rape and you know with rape connotations there you know as much as we want to erase that storyline as being a misstep the fact that something positive was done with it in the form of oracle and then to erase that history of oracle it's it's problematic, to say the least. It didn't sit well with me either. Now, on the Ms. Marvel side, um, it seems like there's an active effort for the text to feature a lot of Kamala's readings of the old Ms. Marvel. How does that yeah. factor into the sort of legacy relationship that we're seeing there? Well, I mean, I think that there's at least something... I mean, we've been so positive about Ms. Marvel. I mean... One of the things, too, I mean, showing her be such a big fan of Carol Danvers and for Carol Danvers to be such an inspiration to her and everything is confirming Marvel's attempts to make <laughs> Carol that character, which, right. you know, is self-serving, you know, and doesn't necessarily address all of the problematic aspects of Carol's history. You know, this isn't a book that's just set up to critique every problematic story that Carol's been involved in. It very much holds up Carol as a positive ideal to Kamala. Mm -hmm. Although, I mean, we talked a little bit about, you know, Kamala's wanting to wear what she calls the politically incorrect costume and finding that it doesn't necessarily represent her effectively. So we do see at least a little bit of commentary on that. But I mean... In terms of her being a legacy character, she exists in an interesting relationship to that, being that she is inspired by that former character. You know, she's taking on the Ms. Marvel name. I mean, we can talk about how it's potentially more positive when she calls herself Ms. Marvel than when the original Ms. Marvel called herself Ms. Marvel, in which case, you know, she did have a rank in the army. So to go from like whatever rank she would have had to like being Ms compared to Captain Marvel, who's the male version was arguably like a problematic come down for that particular character. I think it works a little bit better for Kamala because she's sort of the junior version of Carol. So there's sort of like more justification for giving her that title, but also just the fact that it's inspired by a female character sort of lessens the negative connotations of the Ms title. What do you think of Marvel as the name of the publisher uh, and having Kamala carry that banner with her in her title? I mean, it's, again, Marvel patting itself on the back for being really right. inclusive, which, you know, is the, you know, cynical reading of it. I mean, I think it's important, you know, to like have both Carol Danvers as Captain Marvel and Ms. Marvel have the name in their titles that emphasizes their importance to the brand, their importance to the company. 
I mean, really, my meaning of Kamala Khan as a legacy character, she's a legacy character done right. Mm -hmm. You know, she's using, you know, the previous title of a character in a smart way. She's using it in a way that emphasizes female continuity, female community. She's also just such a well-designed character that, you know, as much as she's inspired by that former character, she's not derivative of that character, which I think is really important, mm -hmm. and which is one of the fundamental problems with a character like Batgirl in all of her incarnations. You know, we've moved with Kamala Khan so far away from her being inspired by, like, she's got no connection to the male Captain Marvel. Like, the, again, this is the Marvel Comics version of Captain Marvel. You know, Kamala Khan doesn't really have any measurable connection to him. It's Carol that she's inspired by. And I, I think that that's an interesting way of dealing with that problem of Carol being derivative, right? They've erased history again, but, you know, they've erased it. I'd argue in this particular case in a way that's a bit more positive than some of the erasures that we see in Batgirl, which, again, I think are, are motivated by by some positive impulses, perhaps, but <laughs> maybe not sort of manifesting in a way that's totally positive. So just in terms of justifying the existence of this podcast, uh, how do these two texts ultimately compare to each other and what is the value of reading them against each other? Uh, maybe we'll start with Anna in terms of what you think a look at the Batgirl of Burnside can help us understand uh, when we bring that to Ms. Marvel. Well, at the risk of throwing Batgirl of Burnside under the bus, I, th I think it is effective in illustrating so many of the things that Ms. Marvel does right in comparison, you know, both in terms of representations of legacy characters, sort of using continuity to your advantage in, in that representation, in terms of costuming, in terms of body design, in terms of identification. Um, I do think it's interesting to read them in conversation with each other, though, just, you know, as part of this larger move to be more inclusive and, you know, the various ways that they try to do that. I mean, in a perfect world, we would have so many female superheroes that we wouldn't have to just compare these two as though one is better and one is worse. These would just be different versions of representing female empowerment. And I very much hope that we can come to that point. And maybe if we did have more plentiful representations of female empowerment, if we had more plentiful representations of even more specifically sort of young, empowered women in superhero comics, you know, it would make Batgirl look a little bit better because we wouldn't be looking to it to achieve so much and, and sort of wanting it to be everything and it isn't so many things. And I mean, Ms. Marvel's not everything either. You know, neither of these books can stand on their own as representing the whole diversity of experiences, but... You know, we need more books like both of these books, in a sense, is, is what I would say if I wanted to be judicious. Michael, do you think that reading Ms. Marvel makes you sad for what Batgirl could have been? <laughs> oh, or do you find redemption um, in, in the Batgirl of Burnside? I will say that in this particular, well, as I said at the beginning, um, I think if failure can sometimes be more educational than success, then there's a lot to learn from Batgirl of Burnside, but more, uh, less snidely at their expense. Um, I think it is a really, I think the structure they set up is interesting that let's address the elephant in the room, let's take this past version of a character and make it our focus rather than something we tiptoe around. I think they then wind up going entirely the wrong direction with it, but I appreciate how everything kind of comes together to address that legacy. 
Mm. even if the addressment goes very poorly. <laughs> that is our podcast. Thank you to everyone for listening. And thank you to St. Jerome's University for providing us with some facilities to record this and to the Games Institute for providing us with some equipment with which to record.